All right. Thank you, Steve. Good morning to you. You all right? All right. Good. Good to hear it. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be all the way on the right side of that book, Revelation chapter 15. I'll tell you a little bit about where we've been. Uh, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. This is a great text in Revelation chapter 15. Uh, we finished Revelation 14 last week because that comes right before. That's really the reason we did that. Uh, Revelation 14 gave you a picture of victory of the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. You remember that? Then we saw the preaching of three angels where they preached an eternal gospel in the heavens. And last week we looked at the reaping uh, of the earth, the reaping of the earth, the hand of Jesus Christ. That is a uh, somewhat of a vision of what is going to come here in the next several chapters. Here's how the remainder of the book goes. Revelation 15 is an introduction to the seven uh, bowl judgments that are about to fall. That's going to happen in chapter 16. They're going to happen real quick. And then you're going to see the destruction of the kingdom of the Antichrist, the beast, who we've looked at already uh, back in 12 and 13. His kingdom's going to be destroyed, 17 and 18. Jesus comes back. Everything's new. Millennial kingdom reign. Amen. No more tears, crying, weeping, all that. And we're done. And it's only going to be like 2025. It's great. It's great. It's such a great, we are in, man, you got the landing gear down. You are ready to, to come to the end of the Bible to see how it all ends. Uh, this is an odd chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, we've seen scenes in this book thus far where there were scenes of worship. You remember Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5? There are these beautiful scenes that begin for us uh, the opening of the seals. Revelation chapter 4 was all about the one who is seated on the throne. Revelation chapter 5 is this hymn and song as all of heaven explodes in worship, saying, worthy is, is uh, the Lamb. Because you were slain and you ransomed by your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the four creatures sing and the elders sing and the angels sing. And this, it's this beautiful worship service. Well, you're going to have a similar um, moment here in Revelation chapter 15. It's kind of a, a pre-wrath worship service, which feels kind of weird to say. Because you know what's about to fall in Revelation chapter 16. The bowls of wrath that we'll see here in, in this chapter will be finished. This will be the end of the expression of God's earthly wrath as everything moves now to eternal blessedness and peace or eternal wrath, torment, and sulfur. And that's where we're headed. Uh, every time you see these big judgment passages in the scriptures, uh, God takes a moment to interpret them for you. They're never given arbitrarily. Uh, wrath doesn't just show up in the scriptures as if God flies off the handle, has enough, and just explodes in anger at the earth. When you get the, uh, the worldwide flood in the book of Genesis during Noah's day, you, you are introduced to the flood by the fact that the thoughts of men are continually wicked all the time. That when... Um, Sodom and Gomorrah happens in the book of Genesis, and fire rains from heaven and destroys the two, those two cities. God comes down and has a conversation with Abraham and says, I'm going to go down and see if the outcry is as great as I've heard. When you get into the book of Exodus, which is, we're going to see a little bit of this, this theme here today, you have the plagues. 
that expose the weakness and inability in the, the, um, of the religious system of Egypt. As Egypt clings to its power and control and God dismantles them plague by plague by plague by plague till the end, they say Egypt is ruined. We have we'll let the people go already. So when that happens for us in the scriptures, it's really important for us to pay attention, right? Because the wrath of God is not a small theme. It's not a small idea. It's something that we must look at, we must understand, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, because if you have a hard time understanding God in the Old Testament and why he has these cataclysmic responses to sin, and you may have heard it said, well, I like Jesus better in the New Testament because he's kind and he heals people and, you know, he does these miracles and all these things. Well, wait till you get to the end of Revelation. Jesus does some things that, that make the Old Testament look like JV. I'm not joking. He, he is scary at the end of the book. So before we get into that, this chapter really is not, doesn't give you a lot to obey, it's, it's the worship of heaven. And as such, it's a chapter that you're meant to ponder and to think on and to reflect on about who God is and what he is like and how he's responding and why his judgments are so good. Uh, so you can, you're just going to have two signs here that are about four verses apiece. You're going to have the, the praise of the people around the throne and then you're going to have the power of God as he now closes heaven and wrath alone falls. All right, so that's, that's basically your outline. If you like outlines, two Ps, uh, really easy. So all about perspective. That's what we're going to look at here, Revelation chapter 15. Sound good? Doesn't matter what you think. That's what I'm doing. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, thanks for your grace and your word to us. Uh, thanks that you speak to people who need to hear your voice. Father, for those who walk into this room and are, uh, who are doubting, who are despairing, who are discouraged in their walk with you, I pray that for these few minutes that we gather, that we would see things about you that would reorient the way we think, the way we feel, the things that we say, our actions and our attitude, and that we would uh, be captured in worship because of the greatness of who you are. Would your spirit bring this text to life in our hearts? Would we leave this place as greater and deeper worshipers of you and what you're doing in our lives? So, Father, for those who walk in here today and, and are suffering and are facing difficulties and hardships and they don't make sense and uh, it's hard to, to see what you're doing, Father, we pray that your word would be the salve to those wounds, to the disbelieving and the discouraged heart here today. Would we get a vision of glory for just these few minutes that we spend looking in? into your word. And as we partake of communion and prepare our hearts for that, would we stand in awe again that Jesus loves me, Jesus died for me, Jesus will one day present us pure and spotless before the throne in heaven. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 15. Take a look here at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Now, you remember, signs have been consistently mentioned throughout the book of Revelation. The last big ones we saw were uh, the nation of Israel, the woman who's clothed with the sun and, a, and had a crown on her head. And then we saw the other sign of the great dragon, who was the great uh, adversary of God's people throughout the entirety of Scripture. Well, here we're going to get another sign that shows up that John gives for us to help see and give give an image as to what's about to happen. A lot of chapter 14 was a forward-looking chapter. It was a summary of the things that you're about to see and the bowls being poured out. 
and the return of Christ happening and the last battle occurring at Armageddon. Well, here's another great sign in heaven. Look at what it says. It's great and amazing. That'll make sense to you in just a minute, but uh, it's a great and amazing sign. Seven angels with seven plagues. Now, when you think plagues, what do you think of? You think of Exodus, don't you? You think of the, the nation of Egypt. Plagues in the, uh, in the New Testament, the word actually doesn't mean pestilence as such. Or if you think of like flies or darkness or waters turned to blood, that'll be a part of the judgments to come. But plague in the Greek means a heavy blow. It mean, it's, a, it's a haymaker. It's the same word that's used of the Antichrist who was given a, a wound and that was healed. It was, he was struck a blow. So when you move through the book of Revelation, the judgments of God, beginning with the seals, continuing with the trumpets, and culminating in the bowls, they move faster. There's this unsettling in the opening of the seals that we saw back in Revelation chapter 6, where uh, there was political and social and economic and agricultural turmoil that starts to happen. But then when you get into the trumpets, things start moving faster and you have the, uh, the uh, third of the ships are destroyed in the ocean and a third of the springs are struck and a third of the, the grass is burned up on the earth and they start to happen with kind of a severity that comes faster and faster and faster and faster and, and here come the bulls. And the bulls happen like that. They're, they're these cataclysmic, destructive forces that hit the earth. So that by the end, you, I mean, people on earth aren't making it but, you know, 72 hours because the water's gone, the atmosphere's gone, the stars are falling apart, everything's on fire. It's just a mess. And here come these plagues that John calls them for us. And we obviously, as we have the scriptures in front of us, think about, well, where's the last time I saw plagues? Well, it's a hint for you to go back and to think about what God did in Egypt, how those 10 plagues resulted in the ruin of Egypt, you would be thinking now at this point, something bad is about to happen, aren't you? You're thinking something destructive is about to come. Well, these seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. As in, this isn't all of God's wrath. We still have eternity where the wrath of God occurs. And uh, as we saw in Revelation 14, those who worship the lamb and the image and the beast will be tormented in the presence of the lamb forever and ever, Right? But these are the last in the series. The, the seals began the wrath of God, the trumpets continued, and now the bowls will be the completion of God's wrath poured out on earth. Take a look at verse 2. Now, let me, if, you, if you just remember real quick, I want to do this just to show it to you so you see what's happening here. Turn back to Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, I don't have time to read all of it. You can, you can read it later, but... The sense of Revelation 4 and 5 uh, gives you these remarkable images of what's happening in heaven. You remember that? And you remember, look at uh, Revelation 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And then he goes on to describe the four living creatures and all of the things that are around the throne. You remember that? Now go down to Revelation 5 in your Bible. Um, Look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, okay? So I just, I, you got a sea of glass, you got bowls, and you've got harps, 
All those three images are going to show up again in Revelation chapter 15. But there's a very particular group of people who we haven't seen in Revelation 4 and 5 who are here in Revelation 15. You with me? Okay, you're tracking. Look at, go back to Revelation chapter 15. All those images, bowls, harps, sea of glass, you're going to see here in Revelation 15. Look at Revelation 15 too. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Paul tells Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. When you get the image of God seated high and exalted on the throne in Revelation chapter 4, he's surrounded by an emerald rainbow and he's surrounded by what Ezekiel calls an expanse or what John calls in Revelation, a sea of glass. So imagine as you observe this heavenly scene that God is uh, exalted and high and separate and different from all of anything else that he has created. And in the image of worship that you have, you have this sea of glass here in Revelation 15, but it's tinged with flashes of fire, probably representing the wrath of God that's about to fall. But here's the group of people that I want you to see. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. Now these people are the, what's called in the, in the scriptures the tribulation saints. These are the ones who in a wicked and evil day where they've lost economic power, they've lost familial safety, they've lost access to uh, ways to provide for their family. They're in a time where no one can buy or sell without the mark of the beast. They're facing constant and frequent persecution as the entire world follows after the beast and the false prophet, that Christians or tribulation saints as they're called will, will be on the run unable to fend for themselves. They'll find no safety in government, no safety in the religious system of the day, no safety in the economic system of the day. They are fugitives. And in many ways, and in many seasons, or many ways, these individuals will step into heaven experiencing the worst of the worst. They've experienced the earth and the people on it in worship of the beast turning against them. Luke, in, in, when Jesus talks about this in Luke, he said, you'll be handed over by mothers and brothers and fathers and you will be turned over to the authorities. That they will have faced betrayal and loss of friends and family and loss of virtually everything at the hands of this culture at this time. But the thing that I want to show you here, you remember what John has said? Remember just two chapters ago, uh, John says, this is a call for wisdom. Remember that? How he, how he described for the tribulation saints of the day. This calls for a mind of wisdom to understand what is happening in your culture. He says earlier in that same chapter, he says this is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Remember that? So that John, as he's writing the book of Revelation, gives counsel to these tribulation saints who are going to go to the end having to endure, going to go to the end with all they have is their faith and their wisdom and their endurance. They've lost it all. Now, would you consider that suffering? Many may be tortured. 
oppressed, persecuted in a variety of ways. They don't worship the image of the beast, they're immediately killed. But here we are in this repeat of a heavenly worship service that looks a lot like Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5. And who is it that's near to God? It's the tribulation saints. You remember way back in Revelation 4, we had the description of what the, the creatures that were around the throne. And the four living creatures were around the throne. Remember those? Those strange-looking, angelic creatures who constantly sing and worship God. And one of the things that was, that one of the ways in which those um, angelic creatures were described is, was as being full of eyes, right? And one of the things we noted when we saw that passage is that those who are closest to God see God the clearest, right? Why in the world would God equip angelic creatures with so many eyes, if not to behold the glory of who he is, right? So in your walk with God, your proximity to God, your intimacy with God depends upon your understanding of who he is. But there's something else that I think is true in this passage that allows us access or creates in us a kind of intimacy when it comes to our relationship with God. And you don't want to hear it, and I don't want to hear it, and you probably know what I'm going to say even before I'm going to say it, but it's suffering. That suffering has this way of weaning us off of the things on which we depend. If you've walked with God for longer than, you know, 25 minutes, you've had something in your life, some season, some difficulty, some hardship, some, some element of suffering that has been in your life that if you wouldn't want to go through it again, but you learn some things about God where God draw, drew near to you in that experience. Christians, you with me? And who's had that? And the beauty of this passage, as these tribulation saints go through the loss of everything, the loss of their life and friendship and all the things that I listed, is that where you see them at the end is close to God. Because this is what happens for us when we suffer, is that we go through seasons where God, there's, Psalm 73 says this, that God, on earth is nothing I desire but you. You ever been there that, that you get to a spot where you go, there's nothing, God, there's nothing else that'll satisfy me in this suffering, in this season of difficulty, that, that God, you've got to draw near. God, I'm here, and it's hard, and I need you, and God, would you draw close Because what these tribulation saints have experienced is the same thing that Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And man went away and sold everything he had to get the treasure in that field. What did they get? They got the longing of their heart. That God gives them the best thing he could give them. His presence, himself. Right? That's the best God can give. No, how did they conquer? You see, you've seen that verb before in the book of Revelation, right? You see what he says? Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. You remember how that happened, right? Revelation 12, I'll just read it to you. You don't need a term. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You remember that? 
God, I, there's nothing here that I want. I only want you. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Has that happened to you? Has God uprooted your tendency to place your hope and joy and peace and security and comfort in things that will be gone that the world and its desires, as John says in his epistles, are what? Passing away. And here are these people who have suffered for the, for the name of God, have suffered for the, for the lamb, and now, now are welcomed into the very presence of God when they're done. Now, that's proximity. And suffering brings us near to God, doesn't it, Christians? It, it, it draws something in us where we, where we pray more, we long more, we, we cry out more, we come into his presence more. But there's something else that happens here that I want you to see. At the end of this verse, what are they holding? You see what they're holding at the end of the verse? With harps of God in their hands. Now, in the book of Revelation, and really throughout the Bible, harps are associated with worship. Harps are associated with, with joy in what God has done. And here they are on the other side of these lives, and you have none of them saying, God, why did I have to go through that? God, that was painful. I am really disappointed in how you led me in that season. Isn't that interesting? Nobody in heaven is going to get there and go, mm, that was pretty good, God. Here's how I would have done it, though. No, what happens? They've gone through hell on earth. They're welcomed in the presence of God, and all they do is sing. See, suffering produces not just proximity and nearness to God. It produces praise in us, if you do it right, right? That we go through those seasons of life, and we draw near to God and learn some things about who he is, but then we respond to God, right? We respond in thankfulness for God and who he is and what he's done and how we understand him better. And God, I never would have learned that lesson. I don't want to do it again, but I never would have learned that lesson if it wasn't for you. And God, I praise your name because of what you've done. And that is what's going to characterize the remainder, really, of this passage. Their whole response is going to look like that. Look at verse three. And they sang. Isn't that good? What are you going to do in heaven? A lot of singing. Get ready. Practice now. They sing. What do they sing? They sing the song of Moses. Now that's an interesting thing to say. Why are we going back? What about Moses? Moses wrote two songs and a prayer. The prayers in Psalm 90, he wrote two songs. One song is Deuteronomy 32, and it has to do with the nation of Israel after their desert wanderings as they get ready to go into the promised land. And then Moses dies, he, tells, he sings this song. It's not a really happy song. He tells them how like mixed motives and you know, false worshipy they are. It's like, it's like grumpy Moses at the end of his life writes him a song. It's awesome. Uh, you can read it later. Uh, but Moses wrote another one that shows up in Exodus 15. Now, if you know the book of Exodus, Exodus 15 is on the other side of the Red Sea judgment. The Red Sea moment in your Bible, in really throughout the Old Testament, is the singular greatest event that God's people look to as an example of his faithfulness, power, and judgment. 
It's consistently the thing that, that uh, God's people worship God for because he, he accomplishes two things in one fell swoop. He accomplishes redemption of his people and judgment of the wicked, okay? That's important. Redemption of his people and judgment of the wicked, okay? Keep that in mind. So I think this song, it's not real clear. Look at the remainder of the verse. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, The Lamb was praised back in Revelation chapter 5. It may be that there are two songs. They sing Revelation chapter 5 again, and they sing Exodus chapter 15. If that's the case, I don't know what the following song is. But here's the next song. It's probably, I think, a combination. It's kind of like we started and we said, if, if you look at the judgment of the Old Testament... The judgment of the Old Testament and these great uh, cataclysms that God does in the Old Testament will be ultimately fulfilled in the book of Revelation. That you need the book of Revelation to understand God's cataclysmic response to sin in a greater and more significant way. Excuse me. Greater and more significant way. Okay, you with me so far? Now, so I think, as far as I can tell here, that this song is going to take elements of Revelation 5 and Exodus 15. It's packed with references. You got cross-references in your Bible there? They're all over the place. So I'm not going to address every single cross-reference. You can go and look at that and look at how many themes are here just packed in these two verses. But these tribulation saints, as they enter into heaven, now sing a song that has to do with redemption of God's people and judgment of the wicked. Okay? In our time, redemption of God's people uh, has, and between where we are and the book of Revelation, feels like there's a lot of distance between them, don't they? That we don't see evil judged immediately. But when you get to the book of Revelation, redemption and judgment get closer and closer and closer and closer. Closer and closer and closer. Redemption of God's people. People are being saved as the wrath of God is poured out. People are getting preached to as the wrath of God is poured out. And judgment is falling. Judgment is falling. Redemption, judgment, redemption, uh, you know, put them together. You get it? Let's look at what it says. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, oh, I want to give you this. This was so good. Uh, This is from a commentator named Robert Thomas, and and the themes that he draws between Exodus 15 and Revelation 15 are great. Listen to this. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. And the song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes. Isn't that neat? That's your Old Testament picture in Exodus 15. It should draw you to what happens in Revelation 15. It should draw your heart toward the ultimate judgment day that's to come. Now, let's look at the song. Great and amazing are your deeds. Now, how did the passage start? A sign in heaven that was what? Great and amazing. So, you connect Revelation 15.1 with Revelation 15 verse 3, where we are, In the context of God's judgments, as the tribulation saints sing before the crystal sea and sing before the throne, they acknowledge that what God does is great and amazing. Nobody in heaven goes, God, that was pretty good. God, that was all right. Back in that season, you know, you were about a four. 
could have turned it up a little bit. But, but you know, I don't know, how, how do you respond to prayers that are answered? Do you say stuff like this? God, great and amazing are your deeds. Because this is what, what, what heaven is like. People get to heaven and they're not bored. They're amazed at God and who he is. They're stunned. They burst out in singing. They play harps. Do you know how to play a harp? You got to learn that too. <laughs> Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. That's what God was called back in um, Revelation chapter 1. The Almighty is a, is a reference to Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is right before Abraham receives the covenant of circumcision and God appears to him and says, I am the Lord God, the Almighty. In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. You've heard that before? It's God of the mighty mountain. So the tribulation saints explode in worship at God's great and amazing deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Not only are his deeds great and amazing, his ways are what? Just and true. You know, one of the things that's happened in, in our culture and time is that we've removed the infinite personal God and attempted to define things like justice and truth on our own. And when you scrub the infinite personal God from history, from philosophy, from economics, from all of the, the spheres of life where you reduce our life and our time on earth to merely material things, where morality is now subjective and I can do what I want to do because I have the power to do it or I can do what I want to do because that's how I feel. What you're left with is mankind making up his own definitions. And unless you have an infinite personal God who has spoken, you have no true understanding of what justice and truth are. None. Don't come to me without an infinite personal God and define justice and truth apart from Yahweh. Just and true are your ways. Now watch this. What, is, what does John call him now? King of the nations. Who has to answer to this God? Just people in 29403? Just people in North America? He is the sovereign king of the universe and the king of all the nations. Every single nation and every single place on earth will answer to this individual. And the tribulation saints explode in worship. Now watch what they say next. So that's the judgment that's to come. Judgment and redemption. You with me? Those two ideas right next to each other. There's the judgment that is to come. Look at what they say next. Uh, look at verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? That's a, a, almost an identical statement to what we saw in Revelation 14. Remember the angel who was flying in midheaven proclaiming an eternal gospel? He said, fear God and give him glory. What is he doing? He's using shorthand for repentance and conversion. He's saying, turn as the judgments of God are falling upon the planet and he's preaching from heaven so that everybody on the earth is being commanded to fear God and glorify his name. Turn to him in trust and obedience before it is too late. And here the tribulation saints, you know what's interesting, back in Revelation chapter six, the there, are, there are martyrs who are underneath the altar. You remember that? 
And they're saying, how long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on the earth? And they're given a robe and told to rest a little while until the full number of their brothers arrive. Isn't that amazing? That here are the tribulation saints, people who have laid it on the line who now join in those martyrs who've gone before, and they both praise God for the gospel, that in the midst of wrath, God has remembered mercy. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great? They go, who will not fear you and glorify you, God, in the day of your wrath where you remember mercy? And when times are bad, and times are as bad as they could be, you're still saving and rescuing and bringing people into your presence. Now, in the Greek, there's three F-O-R statements that explain what the tribulation saints just said. If you have the NASB Bible, you see them all, right? Four, four, four is what they're going to say, and they're going to explain that. You may have a Bible that uses the number, uh, the second one, all nations will come and worship you as a, as a bit of a statement. It's actually an explanation. That's your Greek lesson for the day. Don't worry about it. We'll keep going. There's three statements, though, that are going to explain who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. Here's the first one, for you alone are holy. He is in a category all by himself. And subsequently, the gospel is in a category all by itself. God has a corner on the good news that he himself is holy. It says in Proverbs that knowledge, fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy one is in sight. So he's different. He's set apart. He's in another category altogether. And these tribulation saints recognize it as they worship. Number two, for all the nations will come and worship you. That's almost a direct quote. You have a cross-reference there in your Bible that says Psalm 86? You may have that. You may have other places like Micah 4 and Zechariah 14 that talk about all of the nations streaming to Jerusalem. Here's what Psalm 86 verse 8 says. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Do you see how captured these individuals are with God? Isn't that interesting? You get no explanation, no comments on their previous life, no uh, you know, mention of their scars and their difficulty and what they went through and how hard it was and how they didn't understand what God is doing. They get to the end and go, God, the gospel is amazing. All the nations should fall at your feet and worship you. You alone are holy. That their whole perspective is captured by the character of God. Number three, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now you're tying these together. Verse one, great and amazing plagues. Verse uh, three, great and amazing are your deeds. Finally, your righteous acts have been revealed. We're about to see God's righteous judgment fall upon the earth for sin. And these tribulations can acknowledge that the wrath of God is falling. At the same time, God is remembering mercy and putting redemption and judgment right together. And they sing about it. Verse 5, after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. Now, the tent of witness, we're going back again into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's called the tabernacle of testimony. The tabernacle, I'll get it right, 
The tabernacle of testimony had the Ark of the Covenant that had Aaron's rod that budded. It had a jar of manna that they used in the wilderness, and it had the two tablets that God wrote on. They had the law of God, the provision of God, and the leadership of God all within the Ark of the Covenant. And the tent of the witness here is shown in heaven basically as a testimony to the fact that God, now who is king of all the nations, has revealed himself in his word to the entire earth. That the tent of witness captures and contains for us the law of God. That we would understand that this is what God says about himself. And heaven opens and God speaks because God cares enough to tell us about himself. And we're thankful for that, right? That God loves us enough to disclose himself to us and share with us what he is like. Verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, I've said this before, crystal sea, uh, harps, and bowls. You know what the bowls are in Revelation chapter 5? The bowls in Revelation 5 are the prayers of the saints. The bowls in Revelation 15 is the wrath of God responding to the prayers of the saints. Verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the, from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God's glory descends a couple times um, in the Bible, you may have read the book of Ezekiel where the glory of God departs from the temple. Well, the glory of God shows up in two significant moments in Israel's history. The first is in the, in the um, setting up of the tabernacle. It's in Exodus 40. In Exodus 40, that Moses receives the pattern of the tabernacle and the tent of, um, of witness, and he sets it all up, and then the glory of God falls and smoke fills the most holy place so that Moses himself could not enter, that God comes down and dwells with his people. Similarly, something happens in uh, 1 Kings 8 when Solomon makes the temple. Solomon does his work in his day to create a place where God would dwell, and he finishes all of the work done on the temple, and the glory of God comes in so that none of the priests can enter into the presence of God. And as such, this passage ends essentially with us looking at the mystery of the fact that God is about to judge the sin of the world. And it's as if God pauses at this moment to let nobody else in or out. That what he is about to do rests on him alone. And we've said this throughout 14 and 15. That God begins to act and there's no dialogue, there's no conversation, there's no interest in what man has to say, that uh, none of that. It's God and his activity shining forth and displaying himself and who he is. Now, I want to draw your mind just, just to one more thing. We're going to celebrate communion here in a minute. But if you look at Revelation chapter 15, you would see a, a term that John has used really in a variety of places in his writings. And actually a very important place in his writings. But you see 15.1, how 15.1 starts? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is what? Finished. Now look at the remainder of the passage all the way down in verse 8. 
no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You know, in the, in the history of Israel, they would have uh, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement happened once a year. And in the, the Day of Atonement, that the high priest, the high priest alone, was the singular individual who was allowed to come into the most holy place. Nobody else is allowed in there. And then on that day, they would sacrifice, and he would go in with the blood of the sacrifice, and he would come into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle it. And nobody else, it was said in the book of Leviticus, you can read this, it says everybody outside would pause and all they would do was pray. Because there was one singular individual who went into the presence of God where nobody else was allowed and did something that you would only hear about. Because you weren't there, right? You weren't there when they sprinkled the blood. But it was the day of atonement that God would set up for his people. And he said, on this day, your sins from the whole year are forgiven. And that you would trust as this guy, the high priest of the nation, would go in on your behalf and sprinkle blood for your sins in the presence of God. And that forgiveness then would flow because this priest would come out and say, it's done. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Turn back to John and we'll close here. Look at John 19. We spent some time looking at this text uh, at Easter, so I won't belabor uh, all the points we made there. You can go back and listen to that. But you remember Revelation 14, right? That, that, the, um, that the, the, uh, the earth is reaped. And the vintage of the earth was thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God, right? The image of, of wine being crushed. And that you saw earlier in Revelation 14 that those who receive the mark of the beast will drink uh, the wrath of God undiluted and poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And here in Revelation 15, we have this picture where nobody can go in and nobody can come out until it's done. Now, all of that shows up here in the death of Christ in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. Now, you've got to know the book of John to understand. John's uh, wine only shows up in two places in the book of John. It shows up in Jesus' very first miracle where he turns water to wine. And everybody, his mom comes and says they run out of wine and it's a party and everybody's going to be embarrassed and they need wine. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, woman, what does this matter to me? My hour has not yet come. And then he turns the water in into wine. The next place wine is mentioned in the context of Jesus is right here. So that Jesus in John 2 looks forward to the time when he is going to drink the undiluted full wrath of God poured into the cup of his anger. And he knows it's coming. And here, knowing that all was finished, he shows us this, that a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus has received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know what's interesting about the crucifixion accounts? We have lots of information about what the soldiers do, about what Pilate does, about what the disciples are doing, about the events leading up to, about the injustice of the moment, and all of that story surrounds the crucifixion. But as you move toward the crucifixion moment, 
you get less and less information. You know that? As you move toward the crucifixion moment, it's noon and the sky goes dark for three hours. And we don't get to peer into the mystery of he who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. All we have from the cross is the word of Christ. See, how do you know your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus said so. Right? What else are you going to say? Do you understand the mystery of the Trinity laying its life down and the gospel occurring and God ransoming people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people? I don't understand that. The people in heaven just sing about it. And here's Christ on the cross giving confidence to the fact that the wrath of God has been fully poured out for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, it's done. There's no more to come. There's no more to fall. That in Christ I'm accepted. In Christ I'm welcomed into the presence of God, free and clear from all sin. That in Christ I stand confident that he knows my name and will one day present me pure and spotless before the throne. Why? Because he said so, and he said he would, and he did it, and I trust that he did it. This is where I take my hope and I put it in his hands, and I go, Jesus, unless you do it, nobody else can do it. Because God, I can't do it. I can't fix the sin problem in my life. Jesus, you've got to fix it. And what we need is the testimony of the cross, the testimony of the one who hung on the cross in our place for our sin, saying there is no more wrath. That's the only thing that's going to unhinge this perverse perspective that you think God is mad at you. This is the only thing that's going to unhinge this life of perpetual guilt because you don't believe what Jesus said. And you need to get that down into your soul and recognize that it is finished, his wrath is done, and I am clean, and I am welcomed into the presence of God. What else do we do at communion but that? But remember what he has done for me. You with me? So this passage in Revelation 15 ends with this glaring reminder that there is worship and God's purposes are accomplished and there is suffering, but there is intimacy and a promise of being in his presence and singing for all time the fact that what he does is great and amazing. And we know it is because of what Jesus said. You with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to remember that it is finished. We need to remember that you took the wrath of God on yourself because of what we have done. And Father, may our hearts and the hearts of the people in this room be filled with gratitude for what you have done for us. Would we respond appropriately in worship and joy and thanks, thankfulness because we lay hold to the fact that you have done what we could not that you have finished the wrath of God. You have drunk it all the way down and there is none left. And we stand justified and forgiven and adopted and that we can call God, just like you told Mary, Mary at the tomb, I am ascending to my God and to your God. That we have the audacity of all people to call God our God, our Father in heaven. So Father, would you refresh our hearts with the truth of communion? 
Would you restore the areas of our lives that are discouraged and disbelieving and would the truth of the fact that what Jesus said, it is finished, uh, echo into our spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.